Hey, what's up? This is Jason from Centerpoint Church. We're in this series called Blood, Guts, and the Goat. That's right. That's what this series is called. We're approaching the Christmas season, and I want us to really focus on why Jesus had to come to earth. I'm excited to be on this series. I think God's going to speak to you through it. Let's jump right in. I want to welcome everybody who's watching online. So thankful that you're here today. <laughs> Everything's totally normal in this place. Sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm excited because uh, I believe that God has something pretty amazing for us. We are wrapping up this series called Blood, Guts, and the Goat. It's over after this. You'll, you'll never see these goats again uh, for until a couple years from now when I repackage the sermon series. And we're going to be going through Leviticus 27, 27, 27. If you have your Bible with you, if you don't, that's okay. We'll have it up on the screen, but we've been going through the last five weeks and this is week six of the book of Leviticus. Now you may think, be thinking to yourself that this is a strange time to be going through the book of Leviticus. Where's the message about the birth of Christ? And, and, and here's what I tell you. The book of Leviticus is about the birth of Christ. What I want you to see in this series, what I want you to see in this message today is though the name Jesus is not mentioned, it's all about Jesus. He's the main character. He's the center point of the book of Leviticus. Don't worry, you got 34 minutes and then you're done, okay? 34 more minutes. And, and, and here's the, the, the theme of Leviticus. I'm gonna wrap it up and, and just sum it where we've been so far in a quick amount of time. Is that a holy God wants to dwell with imperfect people so he created a way. And what you see in Leviticus is an algorithm of sacrifices and behaviors so that God can dwell with imperfect people. And then at some point you realize that it's not enough. And so Jesus has to come. And Jesus is the mediator between us and God. And, and we're going to talk about today what the word redeemed means. We say that a lot in church circles. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Well, what does that mean? Why do we say that word? And what does it have to do with our lives today? And we're going to answer all of those things to the point of nauseam. So I hope you're ready of what does redeemed mean. And my message is titled today, Hope Starts here. Hope starts here in Leviticus 27 of all places, because I want you to see why you were redeemed. Now the word redeemed quite literally means to buy back, to purchase something back from who you sold it to. And, and honestly, the redemption story to redeem people is, is one of the primary reasons of the cross is to buy us Back And you're going to see that throughout our time today. Now, in Leviticus, we're going to see that to, to sin is to rebel against the kingdom of God. And for that to be forgiven, a price has to be paid. And it has to be a pretty substantial price. And the price is the blood of Jesus. See, there's been a lot of people who have died for their faith before. They're called martyrs. In fact, you have the opportunity to die for your faith but your death isn't going to redeem anybody. No offense. I think you're great. But it's because you haven't lived a perfect life. That's why Jesus had to come and live the perfect life so that his blood could provide the redemptive work of God. So, before we jump into 27, and we're going to start in verse 1, let me give you a little bit of context as to what we're talking about. Because if we jumped right into 27, verse 1, you'd be like, what does this mean? This is weird. I don't get it. And, and it's not that you're not smart. 
And sometimes the Holy Spirit reveals things to people through Scripture. But oftentimes, you and I, we have access to so much information, yet we allow mental blocks of the Bible of things we don't understand. Now, if you don't understand how to install a sink faucet, men, you're going to ask people, watch YouTube videos. You're going to do everything you can to study so you know how to do this. But when we get to a part in Scripture we don't get, we're like, ah, well, I guess I just don't understand that. When we have the luxury of so much information... And so through commentaries, through teaching, through studies, we can unpack and really understand what's written in the Old Testament and hidden is revealed in the New Testament. And Leviticus 27 is no different. So let me tell you about what we're talking about, and then we'll read it. Is This idea of buying things back. When you made a vow before God in this culture, you would say, if you do this, God, then I will do this. You ever had one of those prayers before? If you get me this raise, then I'll give all my money to the church, please. If you let this girl say yes when I ask her out on a date, Lord, I'll be at church every single week. If you heal this diagnosis, Lord, I will be faithful to you for the rest of my life. Can I tell you the most ridiculous thing I ever vowed to God? Thank you. Dude, when I was a senior in high school, I said, Lord, if you let me win homecoming king, why are you laughing, Charles? If, if you let me win Homecoming King, I will go to church every Sunday and Wednesday for the rest of my life, Lord. I'll, I'll even be a preacher. Now, for the record, I got fourth place. The Lord answers all your prayers. Mm, all things work together for good? I don't know. Marshall knows we went to high school together. He didn't win either, trust me. But we do that. We, we give vows to God. And God takes those vows very serious. So I wonder what would it look like if we stood before God asking him to bless our marriage and we vow before God that this, Lord, is going to be a reflection of your glory and we're going to say for better or for worse, till death do us part. This is a vow before you, God, and yet in the church we have an over 50% divorce rate. God takes vows serious. And so what we see here is when someone made a vow to God, then they would dedicate when he answered that prayer to the tabernacle. So you see like, God, I'm having trouble conceiving a son. And if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the tabernacle and he will be in your service. And we see in scripture that that has happened. And so Leviticus 27 says, what do you want to do and how do you do it? And what is the process and what is the price in case you ever want to buy that back so that you can have your son back at home? Or, you, or, or there's even things about cattle or animals. So if you bless my finances, God, I'm going to give this to you. But then there's a process to get it back if you want to get it back. And it's the same with land. And so Leviticus 27 actually sets the value of humans. And on the surface, you're like, that's not cool. But again, it's to show you what Jesus did. That your salvation is free, but it cost God a lot. And Leviticus is going to show that. So here we are, now that you know. And by the way, for those of you with multiple children, you can't pick and choose after they're born which ones you're giving to the tabernacle. So don't come to me, Jamie, and say, I'm going to choose one of my kids and I'm going to drop them off at the church and they're yours to deal with. That's not how it works. Any of you got a couple family members you'd like to dedicate to the church and be done with it? If you're thinking no, that means you is that family member. 
Leviticus 27, verse 1. Now that we understand the context, let's see this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male between ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. Everybody say shekel. Verse four, for a female set her value at 30 shekels. For a person between the ages of five and 20 set the value of a male at 20 shekels and a female at 10 shekels. For a person between one month and five years set the value of a male at five shekels of silver and of a female at three shekels of silver. For a person 60 years old or more set the value of the male at 15 shekels and female at 10 shekels. If anyone making a vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest who will set the value according to the one that is making the vow that you can afford. And then the rest of 27 talks about animals and land and is to establish the value of them. And it by itself with no context, and if that was the end of it, without a continuation of the New Testament, would seem like a strange thing to put in scripture. But the Old Testament is in place to reveal who Jesus is. And to show you what Jesus did. And to remind you of who you are. And this is no different. So, if we take a look at this very high-priced sermon prop, and those of you who are OCD, Heather Tucker, I pre-apologize because I know the lines are wavy and it kind of, but, but it was either this or I spend your tithe money on getting something professionally printed. So, did I make the right choice? Oh, you're going to clap for that. Wow clearly one of my deacons. All right. So I want you to look at this and it's not necessarily important that you know the information as much as you understand the why. And so we have the value here of each of the genders, what their ages are, and then what their equivalent shekels are. This is so important because it's going to unlock so many different things in the Old Testament for you, but it's also going to show the idea of what it means to be redeemed. And so if you were a male between the ages of 20 and 60, you're worth 50 shekels. If you're a female, you're worth 30. It's not spiritually, it's not of value. This is an archaic way of saying how much work can you do on the land. And for the male, five to 20, it's 20 shekels. And then we have one month to five years old and it has the value. And then we have 60 all the way to Gerald and it has what their value is here. Now you may be asking yourself, why on earth would Gerald be worth three times what a five-year-old is worth? Because you've got that five-year-old for a long time. Well, here's, here's the thing, is it has to do with what can they get right now? So let me put this in context if you're like an NFL coach. All right. If you're an NFL coach and you're trading away all your good players for first round picks five years from now, you're probably not going to be around if your team's terrible. You're going to get fired and those picks are going to go to the next guy. Right. So what you want to do is I'm not worried about a five-year-old because they're not going to do much because I may not be around by the time they are. So I want who can do the most work right now. And so like my mind goes to Genesis 37 when it's talking about Joseph and the coat of many colors and it says that his brothers sold him to slavery to the Ishmaelites, I think. It's something that ends in ites. And, and, and he sold them to them and it says that he was sold for 20 shekels. And so why is that important? Because right away I can look, okay, if it's for 20 shekels and he's a male, then I know he's somewhere between this age. 
So it sort of just kind of unlocks bits of scripture. And then when they go to the marketplace, there's established prices for things. And you're like, well, how do they know? You know, is it like they just fluctuate supply and demand? And, and a lot of it, they, they don't talk about raising prices of things. They talk about making uneven scales or unjustified scales when they would trick people into saying, well, this is only worth this much. So you got to give more. And so, again, this is going to be important because I need you to understand the why. Because this shows us Christmas. You may not have thought that, but this is Christmas. No milk and cookies. No grandma got ran over by a reindeer. This is Christmas. Why is this Christmas? Because the story of Jesus is the story of he came to earth to redeem us, to buy us back. Who, who, who's he buying us from? The law. Because you and I are under this law. And the law is a result of our sin. So sin is a rebellion against God. And by our sin, we choose who our master is going to be. And sin and the law owns us until we are purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend the second half, well, second two-thirds of this sermon talking about. I, I have this scripture. It's not going to be up on the board because this morning I kind of came across it. And, and I was thinking about, you know, when Jesus came and why did God choose a particular time? And, and Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, 4, and it even says it in the Old Testament as well, uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the right time came, most translations say but in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to redeem those under the law. Some of your translations literally say buy back that we might receive adoption to sonship so right there it says Jesus came to the earth to redeem us to buy us back and now we belong to him listen to what Paul wrote Romans 3.23 you may know this first part for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but here's the second half and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We have been redeemed. Therefore, we are justified before God, a holy God. Galatians 3.13, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself a curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in scripture, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus hanging on that cross literally took our curse that was the cost. I want you to hear 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Now, this is Peter post-Pentecost. This ain't Peter who's cussing out little girls and cutting off ears. This is an old, spiritually wise, mature Peter, the rock, later on in his life. Listen to what he says. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors. Hold up. This is what he's referencing. He's saying, you're not redeemed. You weren't bought back from the law by gold and silver like the ancestors were. That's not how you were. He's writing to a new covenant, a New Testament audience. How were we bought back? Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now that we belong to God and that we've established that, we should live differently. 
I, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians, man, if you ever read 1 Corinthians, we did a whole series on it called Welcome to the Fabulous Corinth uh, in a Las Vegas symbol. Uh, I think it was about a year ago. But if you read the, the book of 1 Corinthians, it's, it's really a verbal spanking with a church that's kind of lost their way. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I think it echoes what the church needs to hear today. Listen to this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, really the first half of 1 Corinthians, but especially chapter 6, he's pleading with the church to abstain and turn from sexual immorality. And sometimes we only think of it as he's saying, oh, you've done this, you shouldn't have done that. You did this, you shouldn't have done that. And that's part of it. But I love what Paul is doing right here. See, what was going on at the time, culturally happened a lot in the early first century church, is this teaching called dualism. And dualism, and they believed it, is that your body and soul are two different things, dual. They're dual things. And that as long as your soul is good, it doesn't matter what your body does. It's just your body. It's going to return to dust. And so it was a great way to justify any kind of sexual immorality you wanted because they bought into the teaching that their soul and their body were detached. And so it didn't matter. But that's not what Jesus said. See, Jesus, he, he, he talked about transgressions, sins of the hand, as well as iniquity, sins of the heart. And that's why when he said to the Pharisees, no, no, if you've even lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Because the Pharisees, the religious folk, they were great at saying, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. And Jesus is like, no, 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 your actions may be okay, but your heart is so far from me, man. It's corrupt on the inside. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, no, 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 no. Your body is the temple because the Holy Spirit resides in you. So how on earth can you say my body has nothing to do with my spirit? And he's trying to tell them that it's not performance-based. Listen to what he says. You are not your own. And he tells them, for you were bought with a price. Now, some of you that grew up in a small church where you were beat over the head with these types of things and made feel guilty where you thought you had to get saved every single week because you were a terrible human, some of you are going to look at this verse from this idea of, he's telling them they messed up, man. I know I've messed up. I need to be reminded. I need, you know, how long am I grounded for? Uh, how long is my penance? You know, and, and, and you're thinking that way, but that, that's, that's, that's a part of it. But I want you to look at this from a different point of view. See, when I had kids, in particular daughters, it changed a lot of my perspective of how God views me. And I want you to lean into this for a moment. What Paul is saying right here is you were bought with a price. And he's saying the price was the life of Jesus. And because of that, that makes you valuable. So what Paul is saying right here is don't you know who you are? Don't just cast aside your sexuality and your actions as if you're not valuable. Don't you know who you are? You were bought with a price. With my daughters, I don't want to have to write on the wall a list of all of the different things they don't do. My goal is to tell them who they are. And then once the Holy Spirit is in them, 
Well, then I don't have to tell them all those things because 10 years from now, who knows what the do's and don'ts are, but the Holy Spirit's job is to guide them. Jesus says that I will give you the Spirit that will remind you of the things that I've told you. I want them to know who they are. My kids don't do anything for me. They're parasites, man. Your kids are parasites. They live off the host. My kids don't mow the yard at my house. They don't help pay bills. They don't do anything. Just parasites. I don't love them because of what they do for me. I love them because they're mine. I love them because of who they are. And because of who they are, I expect them to act differently. I don't expect them to act differently because of the things I've told them. I've never told them they can't walk into church and cuss. I've never told them that. I don't want them to. And they might, the youngest ones, you're like a mom. But, but, <laughs> but they know who they are. And that's not what we do because that's not who you are. I feel like God gave this to me. Most of the stuff I steal, just so you know, it's called the case method, copy and steal everything. That's how I run my life. But, but this God actually gave to me so you can retweet, retweet it or just give me credit because I'm humble like that. I want you to hear this. What you do doesn't affect who you are. Who you are affects what you do. If I had one thing to say to the church today, the whole church today, it would be this. Because what I see is a generation of people who don't know who they are. And somehow the devil has convinced them that this has to do with what you do. I'll prove it to you. There's people that aren't in this room today that used to come to this church consistently and as soon as a little bit of sin got in their life, I stopped seeing them. Some of you in here will not be here six months from now because you will allow the devil to convince you that your actions are what make you righteous in front of him. And so the moment sin comes in, what do you do? You separate from church. You, the second that you sin... I bet your first instinct sometimes is I can't pray to God because he doesn't want to hear from me because he's disappointed that I just did it again. You don't have God's approval because of what you do. And I'm going to take it one step further. You don't want to stand before God one day on all the good things that you've done on your own merit. You don't want to. It won't be good enough. I don't care if you tie the $100,000 to this church every... Well, I do care. Hold on. I don't care if you go to a different church and you tie the $100,000. I'm kidding, but here's the point. is how faithful you are with your money. How much money you give has nothing to do with it. How consistent you are here if you serve in the nursery, if you go be a, a missionary in a hut in Africa. Those things are not... If you live the perfect life, you never yell at your wife, you never cuss your husband, you never do any of those things, and you walk before God and say, look how good of a person I am, God. You don't want to stand before God trying to be justified on your own merits alone. You don't want to. What you want to do is you want to walk into that place and be like, I once was blind, but now I see... You want to walk before God and said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, like me. And it's because of your grace and your mercy that I can stand here before you, God. And I'll never deserve it, but I receive it. And because
because of that. If I could say one thing to you in here, it would be, you are made righteous by what God did, what Jesus did on the cross, so act like it. Walk out of here with your head held high. Walk out of here saying, that might be who I was, that might be what I'm doing now, but that's not who I am. Walk out of here with the courage to stand up for false doctrine, for false teaching, for a world that's going to try to taint the word of God. Stand up for it. Because if you don't, who else? Who else? I want to tell you a story. And I want you to lean into this. Because this is powerful. I think for some of you, this is going to reveal a depth of the character of God and how he views you. I also want you to lean into this because last service, we had no problems. And right as I started this story, lights were flickering, all kinds of problems. Don't you tell me for a second that the devil's fingerprints aren't on that. He doesn't want you to hear this today. So lean into this. I want to tell you a story about a boy in his boat. And if there's one thing for you to, be, to take away from this, this is what I would want you to take away. This boy grew up in a simpler time, a time some of you grew up in, a time when you didn't lock your front doors, a time where you didn't have a phone. You could run around the town barefoot. You could go to the general store and pick up snacks for nickels. And this boy, every summer, would go stay with his grandfather in one of those towns. And he'd go to the watering hole every day. Overalls, barefoot. Half the time he'd have a frog in his back pocket. And he went to stay with his grandfather and his grandfather had this amazing wood shop. You could walk in and you could still smell the sawdust. You can see the little dim lamp that flickers from time to time over in the corner. And this boy decided that he was going to build a boat. And he took his time building this boat. Every little detail he did on purpose, for a purpose. And some spots took longer than others, but everything he did was on purpose. And he, he took joy in creating this boat. And then he put a sail on it and he made the sail, just he painted it and it looked different than any other sail there ever was because it was on purpose. And, and, and then he takes this, this, this boat and once it's complete, he looks at it with such, with such pride and joy and, and, and then he turns it over and he writes his name on it because it is his. He made it. And then the day came where he was going to send it out of the water. It's maiden voyage. And so he runs down to the creek that's going to eventually lead to the watering hole and he puts the boat down on the water and he just watches with pride and joy as it does what it's supposed to do, what he made it do, what he designed it to do, what its purpose was. And he watched it like a proud parent. And his, and his joy turned to dread as he saw a big fast current come through. And it kind of took it just out of his reach. And so he panicked and he starts wading in the water trying to get to it and, and, and he still couldn't reach it. So he hops out on to the shore and he's running down the shoreline trying to catch up where it is and there's a spot where there's some trees and he kind of loses sight of it. And then, and then when he cuts back around, the boat is nowhere to be found. It has drifted away. And so he makes a beeline to the watering hole because that's where all those things end up and, and, and it's nowhere to be found and he is devastated, inconsolable. And he goes back 
He doesn't tell anybody. And about a week goes by and, uh, and his grandfather sees that he's still not super happy. And so he gives him 13 cents to go down to the general store, get himself an ice cold bottle of Coke. They taste better in a glass bottle and a moon pie. And as he's going down to the general store, he passes the window and he looks in the window and there for sale is his boat. And and he runs up to the manager of the general store and he's like, Mr. Mr. That's my boat. I made it. My name's on the bottom of it. That's my boat. And then the manager says, "I, I believe you, son. But that boat's for sale. And it's going to cost you 43 cents. Well, 43 cents? That's a lot of money. He says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll hold on to it till you have the money. And you can come buy your boat back. And so he ran back home. He went to all the neighbors and said, man, can I, can I pull weeds? Can I mow your yard? Can I, what, what can I do? And, and, and he worked all summer and saved up that money. And the day came where he had that money. And he went up to the counter and just dumps it on the counter. And one at a time, he starts sliding over the coins until it reaches the amount. And the manager of the general store goes and gets the boat. And he hands it to him. And he looks at this boat. Lean into this. And he looks at all of the different things that he remembers when he made it. And by now, somewhere between when it got lost and when it's in the shop, there's there's some marks that weren't there. There's some divots in the wood. But he doesn't care. Because he remembers. And he made it. And he takes the boat and he goes back to his grandfather's shop and cannot tell him fast enough. And he looks at this boat and he just holds it. And he says, I love you. I made you and I bought you. I love you twice. See, here's what you need to hear. Yeah, you may have some dings, you may have some divots, you may have some marks, you may have some scars, but when God looks at you, he remembers. See, his word says that he knit you together in your mother's womb. So the very lungs that you breathe, he remembers when he created those. And even if you use those those lungs to speak poorly of his name or declare doubts. He doesn't regret making them because he remembers that he made them. He remembers the purpose. And when he looks at you, he looks at you the same way that that boy looks at that boat. And somewhere along the way, we sold ourselves to sin. We sold our flesh. We may have walked away from God for a while the same way that boat was out of the reach of him for a while. If somebody in here needs to hear this, he made you and he bought you. He loves you twice. I want to end it with this verse. 
I think it sums up Leviticus 27 perfectly. You see, Leviticus 27 talks about the outrageous love of God. But despite you running, despite you sinning, despite you messing all of these things up, God never stops pursuing people. Never stops. We just had somebody a couple of weeks ago who had a family member that an hour before they died gave their life to the Lord in the hospital. God will pursue until there is nothing left. The most hideous, disgusting, gross of people, God will pursue. That's how the gospel works. Listen to Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Paul says in Ephesians that you are God's special possession. Somebody needs to be reminded of that today. You are who he says you are. And because of that, you act different. Because of that, you talk different. Because of that, you pray differently. Because of that, you believe differently. Because of that, you act differently. You live differently. You give differently. And you forgive differently because of who you are. He made you and he bought you. He loves you twice. Would you stand with me, church? I want to tell you this. If you have not given your life to the Lord, you have no hope. None of these things we've talked about apply to you. And you will live in eternity separated from God forever in hell. It's not cruel to say it. It's cruel for me not to tell you that. have to believe that the power of Jesus the power of what he did on the cross can redeem us, it can buy us back and we can be his special possession, his royal priesthood, his chosen people, sons and daughters of the most high king and it's a prayer away 